Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, sir. How are you doing? It, it's been a great week. It was Last week was a little rough. It was a little too busy for my liking. This week, we've things have kind of slowed down a little bit, and I've, I've had a little bit more opportunity to kind of live in my technical exploration area, which is it's my happy place, Steve. I know how that goes. Sometimes I get very disconnected from doing doing the technical work as an architect, and then when I get back to it, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like coming home. Well, and the, the part of the problem is like when you when you eat, live and breathe tech and that's also what you do for work, then you get done and it's like, oh, man, you know what I really should do? I should go configure my switch and set up this server. But you know what I f- don't feel like doing after configuring switches and setting up servers all day? And yeah. it's, it's the whole like the, the, the shoemaker's kids has no shoes. Hey, 855 450 no, it's 1-855-450-6064. The email live at com. James joins us from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the program. Hey, um, need to know things about Linux and the mount points for USB seems to be changing all the time. I'm trying to make a script that will look for a USB drive based upon the label, but the internet says you need to look in two different, two or three different places. One says MMT and one says media. Uh, where would I be looking? <laughs> well, it depends. What oh, kind of correct. it depends? So the difference there is what kind of storage device you're using. What kind of storage device are you plugging into your computer? I need to scan for a USB device that may its SD label would change randomly. You know what I mean? Okay, so it's an open plug-in. So I want to label it. I want. I know how to look for a label. So let's say we labeled the USB drive called Fred, and you want to know is is Fred plugged in? <laughs> so you don't want to do this via a script. This this is exactly what UDEV rules are meant for. So essentially, a UDEV rule is: Hey, when I get a device that's plugged in and it has such and such identifier give it a name, do a specific mount point. When I was doing a lot of um, flashing for lineage and stuff like that, I had a test phone and I built a UDEV rule so that it always mounted in the same place with the proper write permissions because UDEV can also do things like mount it as a specific user and all of those sorts of things. So while you could script this, UDEV is actually the facility that you want to learn to use because that's what it was designed to do. Uh, add to a security on a uh, script to look for the, the, the that USB thing, and I figured I would, since I probably would uh, never know what it, what it was going to be, and, and it's not going to be running all the time. Just when I run it, 
So your your phone is breaking up a, a little bit, but what? But but the you're, you're you're going. But does does the idea of exploring UDEV rules does that help you? At least give you a path to kind of start down. I'd have to I'd have, I'd have to look into that and look into UDEV rules. Um, if I can. If I could make a song I could just execute on, uh, on occasion, then it would work. Well, but what but what is Steve, what Steve is saying is that UDEV is going to manage that you know, so that slash dev directory, and you were saying that the name changes, and so you wanted a you wanted a predictable way to find where that device is going to be. Well, well what happens is um, a few variants back that everybody was saying you need to look in slash. MMT. Now people are saying no. They're changing the rules and they want you to right. flash media. Right. So that so, so that, that so, so that's it's like okay. Which is it? So this is what we're trying to tell you. So when you plug a device in, the kernel is sent a bunch of data using a Netlink socket, right? And so UDEV is listening to that Netlink yeah. socket, and then the kernel uses that communication with the other applications like Dolphin and so on and so forth. I haven't really looked into how to use, really use that tool, so I'll have to look that one up okay. and rethink a whole entire script. Then, yeah. So the, the short where you, the, I think for the call, the the short version is if you go and look in, I think it's var slash log. Uh, when you plug in and unplug, you're going to see an entry for that flash drive, and you can then use that to figure to to either to to trigger UDEV rules or or base something off of that kernel event that's related to when you're plugging that flash drive in and out. So give that a shot and, 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 and let us know. Give us a call back, too. Let us know if that ends up working out for you. We appreciate the call. Again, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Our first email comes in from... Roger. Roger writes in and says, hi, Noah. In a recent episode, there was a question about collaborative spreadsheets and if LibreOffice could be used. Only Office and NextCloud was mentioned as a possible solution. I've not experimented with collaborative spreadsheets, but adding Collabora Online to NextCloud Hub will give you a LibreOffice-based online office suite in your web browser. He links to nextcloud.com slash Collabora Online. So this is, Steve, what is this, the second or third time that somebody has brought up Collabora? It's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty popular suggestion. Um, maybe because it plugs in pretty well to Nextcloud. I I looked at it several years ago, um, and my need for this type of tool has decreased over time, um, as I apparently just work by myself these days. <laughs> so um, I haven't looked at it in several years now. Well, it's just the way that you do spreadsheets by yourself. Yeah. There you go. Your our second email comes in. Uh, from Zach. Zach writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. No problem not getting to this question or sorry if I missed it. I figured this out and I just wanted to update you on there was a multitudes of issues here. He's following up on a previously asked question about Thunderbolt 3, a Gen 2 dock with an X1 carbon. He says, the, the, the first thing was the firmware for the dock was way out of date. So the first thing he did was updated the firmware. The second thing is the cable that he was using wasn't a good quality USB-C Thunderbolt cable. So he swapped that out for a proper Thunderbolt cable. The third thing then was that the power supply needed to be the 230 watt version with the Y splitter cable to power both ports on the dock. When he received the dock without the cables and the power supply, he didn't realize that there was a bigger and more expensive uh, power supply available, even though it, it costs more money. Now, I have to tell you, 
I have an X1 Carbon, and we issue T480, T490 series laptops at Ulta Speed. We have a lot of Thunderbolt docks. I've never had to use the 230-watt power supply to get any of them to work. On top of that, I would also say that we just recently purchased one of those 230-watt power supplies because we were trying to power a Dell Precision that required more than 100 watts of power. found out that doesn't work, by the way. Um, so I'm, I'm a little... I'm a, I'm glad that you got it to work, and certainly um, thanks for writing back in and letting us know. And so, if there's somebody else out there that is sitting there saying, "Hey, I have this problem too," might be a path you can go down. But I think there might be something else going on. I'd be interested to know if you used a proper Thunderbolt cable and the regular power supply with updated firmware. If that alone wouldn't solve your problem. But in any event, we appreciate you writing back in. Thanks for keeping us in the loop. Our third email comes from Tony. Tony writes in and says, I have set up an instance of NextCloud on a standalone PC in my home network. My wife and I share a single account for our Google Calendar. What I'm looking to do is sync Google Calendar with NextCloud. I want to edit the Google Calendar and tasks from NextCloud while leaving my wife's workflow intact. I do not have a domain available for use, which Google integration seems to require. Do you know of a way to sync the two systems without a domain? Respectfully, Tony. Steve, your thoughts? Hmm. Um... Honestly, when I tried to tackle this back in the day, it was just easier to say, you know what, here's the next calendar, give me your phone, I'll plug your calendar into this, and then we just use the next cloud calendar. And that's, I just did a whole hog switch because she used her phone mostly to interact with the calendar. So this was back several years ago, and, and that worked for us pretty pretty nicely. I know that you can get an iCal link for your Google Calendar and then add it into NextCloud, but that doesn't allow you to use NextCloud to edit your Google Calendar. Mm. It just it just gives you that one-way kind of read access to it. So I'm not aware of a way to do this. It might be out there. I'm just not aware of it. So I'll I'll tackle the the second part of this the second part of this question. He said that. Um, he doesn't have an available uh, an available domain to do this, and Google in integration um, suggests that there is a way to do this if he has a domain. So one of the things that you might consider doing is setting something up like Dynamic DNS. Um, even if you do, even if you're using like a DigitalOcean droplet to rent your 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 server, and you have a static IP address, um, it's if you need to be able to enter in a DNS name, and that's all you're looking for. Um, there's certainly a way to do that, um, and you could use one of the many, you know, DuckDNS or DINDNS, uh, uh, plenty of uh, available options out there, but dynamic DNS might be a way that you could get yourself a domain without having to pay for one. I, there's also, there's a couple of TLDs that are available for free, but from what I understand, there's a couple of hoops that you have to jump through. Um, so, I mean, a domain's only 15 bucks a year. I mean, go to registerforless.com, find yourself something. Um might be an easy way to, to to do that, but if if not, I would go with one of the the dynamic DNS services. Um, how do you like using just Nextcloud, Steve? Particularly, I guess maybe let me rephrase that question. How does your wife like Nextcloud as compared to how did she like Google Calendar? Well, because she does, she just interfaces with it on the phone. There was no, there's no trouble at all switching. It was just simply like, hey, here's the the Nextcloud link. Like I. I guess I didn't hand anything to her. I took her phone. I I took the uh, calendar application, 
And I plugged in the Nextcloud server stuff and then handed it back to her and said, here you go. And then and that she, was years ago. And she hasn't noticed the difference to her. It's just no, a calendar be, on my phone that my husband set up. Exactly. It's just the front because her front end didn't change. I just swapped out the back end. So it's no longer pointing at Google. Okay. And have you done anything with Google or Google integration or it's just everything is on Nextcloud now? No, we just whole hog switch. There was no, there was no real reason f- to integrate with Google. There, I, I don't, I have a Gmail account somewhere that's getting a lot of dust on it because I have forwarding over to my Proton Mail, and before that, I was running my own Zimbra server for a decade. So, email it's invites one of those, and all that, all that all works. Uh, well, again, because. Because of the way that that I do things, um, it works fine for us. If you are trying to do it from your web browser, that might be a little bit different. But when you're doing it on a phone, it just the email, the links and the invitations come through and you open them up in the Proton app and then it just opens them in your calendar app. And if your calendar Ah. app is configured, then it doesn't matter. Whatever the default is. Okay. Very cool. John writes in and says, hey, no and Steve, my house was built in 2016 and it has a coax line from the networking closet to most of the rooms. I initially brought coax to Ethernet adapters, but they failed pretty often and were a bigger pain than they were worth. So I was writing to ask the Ask Noah community for any other home hosted ideas that I can make use of the cable. Is there something like HDMI to coax that I could use the TV content from HDMI video audio devices? I'm open to other ideas, too. Steve, you got any thoughts for excess use of coax cable? Well, like you've said before, you can you can actually turn this into the commercial grade version of HDMI, um, and it's kind of handy. I'm I'm not sure what I would do with that exactly because uh, I don't know that I would want to broadcast a signal into every room like that. Um, I also know that there are. Um, I know he said that he's he's got the adapters. I'd be I'd be curious to find out which adapters they were, uh, just out of curiosity for failing. Because I do know some people that have used them successfully for several, I want to say several years now. So I'd be curious to find out which adapters were being used and how they failed. What it means to be failed? Does it mean that they died and the device no longer worked, or was was packet were packets being dropped? I'm just curious as to what was happening there. Yeah, so there are there are some commercial uh, implementations of of network over coax. In fact, um, I can't think. Uh, it's um, gosh, the name's going to escape me now. Mocha. Uh, so Mocha is a it's uh, M O capital C A, and it's it's heavily used in the uh, TV industry, and it's what they're using to. They have these little IP boxes that are doing their streaming of their content. And obviously, because they're a television or TV service company, everybody's assuming that their service is going to go over coax. And so houses already have this coax already run to all the TVs. So they put these mocha boxes uh, as on, on your TV and plug the coax cable into it. And it's actually doing network over coax. So the first thing I would tell you is I would echo what Steve said. If you are have an interest in doing networking over coax, it certainly can be done, and the fact that you can get from your CMTS to your cable modem and get a, you know, get three, four hundred megs 
uh, 304 meg link up to your CMTS tells you that it's technically possible to push that kind of bandwidth over uh, quad shielded coax, which is likely what is in your house. Um, but if it were me, if I woke up in your shoes and had RG6 run over all over my house, what I would do with it is I would do exactly what Steve said. I would put BNCNs on it and I would turn them all into SDI cables. And as far as some ideas of what you could put over your SDI cables, here's a couple of ideas for you. First thing you could do, um, my wife really likes the ability to flip on the TV and see who is at the front door or who's around the house. So she hears a bump in the night or whatever. She flips the TV on, turns it to a specific input, and the camera system for the house comes up. And so that's how we use our uh, RG6 feed. The other thing that I've used RG6 feeds for or SDI, uh, RG6 cable with SDI for is if you have some complicated media type stuff, a lot of times you'll say, as the nerd of the house, I want a Cody box and I want this huge PC thing that's going to be really cool. And that's great, except then the spouse approval factor comes in and says, you're going to put what in my living room? No, it's going to look like, okay, all right. So we'll put all the equipment in the network room. It will be super powerful. It will be super nerdy. It will be super cool. And then we will just send the video signal from that location out to each of the rooms. Mind you, you don't have to send the same video signal to all of the rooms, right? They all come back in there. They're all separate feeds. So you could have a separate media box for each room and all of them could be in one centralized location or you could do like I'm doing, have them all tied together to a splitter and it just sends a single SDI feed out over whatever you'd want to see in every room in the house, which for us is cameras. Um, so media stuff is probably what I would suggest taking a look at. Um, but if, but, but certainly if you say to yourself, I really prefer to have some networking stuff, I would probably revisit uh, some different brands or, or, or different implementations of networking over coax because I can, I believe it definitely can be done. Our fifth email comes in from Charlie. Charlie says, good day, everyone, including Noah and Steve. Hey, he included us, Steve. That's fantastic. <laughs> Huzzah. <laughs> <laughs> I came across this new gadget. It's the 10 gigabit NIC using an M.2 slot. Since the ITX motherboards come with a single M.2 plus a single PCI Express, this could be an ideal situation for ITX servers, yeah? 10 gigabit via M.2. Steve. Thoughts on this? I loved this email. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, I have, I hadn't considered doing this, but I definitely have some uh, MATX boards, and they have the same problems the ITX boards, which is that you want that small form factor, so you give up the the extra PCI slots, and so I think that this would actually be quite useful to me, and I'm going to look to see if I can use this and how well it works because you're either looking at with those small ones, you're either looking at trying to bond multiple NICs together to increase your throughput or you're buying like a 10 gig adapter. And so I think that this is, this is really neat and I'm going to kind of file this away for later. Drill a hole in the side of your nook. Yeah, exactly. No, that's really cool. Our sixth email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy says, so today I have a soft skills question. How do you convince a customer or coworker that their idea isn't a good one? I find this situation challenging. Many people become emotionally attached to their ideas and trying to talk them out of a bad idea is difficult. Any tips on honing soft skills with coworkers or customers? So Steve, I, I guess I'll throw this to you first. Do you have any suggestions or thoughts for Jeremy? 
Soft skills are things that unfortunately you don't get to practice without failing. So you can take tips from other people and that's great. It gives you a spot to start from. But soft skills are something that you have to implement that are unique to you because the way that Noah might try and advise me personally to deal with a situation might not work because our personalities are different. Noah is very much a people pleaser. He wants mm. he wants to make everybody happy. I do. And so the way that, that he approaches things and his soft skills don't really jive with the let's say the straightforward attitude that I have, right? Because I'm not, I'm not interested in, in really pleasing you. I'm interested in getting you the right answer if you've engaged me for that. So I know that doesn't really help except to say, honestly, you have to start by knowing yourself. And I've, I've given several really long talks about this, but it's so critical. A lot of people talk about, hey, you do this for your soft skill or you do that for your soft skill and it never works for them, or it only works part of the time. And a lot of that comes from the fact that the person who's trying to exercise the soft skill doesn't understand their own personality type well enough. And that really is key to being able to interact with other people. Because if you know how you react, then you can also plan ahead to, to think, okay, if I meet another person like me, how am I going to diffuse that situation? If I meet a, a people pleaser and they're objecting, how do I handle that situation? And the only way that you're going to really work through that is if you have a good sense of self. What do you do, Noah? Well, first I want to say I, I appreciate you taking the time, Steve, because being on the top is lonely. <laughs> That's a callback <laughs> to uh, several talks that I've given. Um, and we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, there's a, those are good talks. We should dig into that more on a, on a future episode at some point. But uh, so so back to Jeremy's question. So so how do you convince a coworker that their idea is a bad idea? So yes, people become emotionally attached to their ideas. Here's what you should understand, Jeremy. People are emotionally attached to their ideas, in large part because that. Do you know what the number one uh, factor that leads to people leaving their job? The number one thing. That causes people to leave their job. And that can either be they leave their job because they quit the job or they leave the job because they get fired. But the number one underlying factor that leads to that is when people don't believe that they have a meaningful impact on the work that they're doing. When you show up to work and you feel like you're a rat in a wheel and you're punching a clock and you're going through the actions but your suggestions fall on deaf ears, nothing changes. I've worked inside of these environments. I've seen this firsthand. It is a it is it is a horrifically toxic thing that happens inside of workplaces. Um, and, and that's what leads people to leave. So the reason that people become very emotionally attached to their ideas in the first place is because they are personally invested in the work that they're doing. And that part you want to keep. You want to maybe redirect that so that they become emotionally attached to the, 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 the work that everybody else is doing, but you don't want them to lose the motivation. So the first thing I would tell you is it might be a great time if you have the pull in your organization to do this, have everybody sit down and write a personal mission statement. We require everybody that works at Speed Technologies to do this. If you work at our company, you have to write a personal mission statement and your personal mission statement has to be in line with our company's mission statement. So when we go out and 
and I ask you what you do or a customer asks you what you do, you know that answer and you've internalized that answer and 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 you you wake up every morning prepared to do that thing because you understand w- what you're skating towards. And so a lot of times if you sit down with a with with a coworker and I'm not saying it would be any you know this specific situation but a lot of times when you sit down with a coworker or you sit down with a team member and say, "Hey, can you tell me what it is you do here and how is that in line with what we're trying to accomplish as a company?" you'll find sometimes that there's this massive disconnect and that what they're trying to do isn't even compatible with what we're trying to do as a team. And so that's an opportunity for some for some correction. The other thing I would tell you is the best correction comes from clarifying questions as opposed to assumptions. So when I sit down in my office and somebody comes in and says, here's my problem, it's X, Y, and Z. Instead of saying, here's what you should do differently or here's why you got that wrong, I oftentimes will try to lead that person to that the same end conclusion, but by asking questions. And if, I, if you can ask the right questions and they arrive at the answer, they are more likely to internalize what it is you've talked about as, as opposed to just, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, uh-huh, and then turn around and walk out. And then after they leave, then their brain begins to engage and they start going, well, he didn't think of this and he doesn't understand that and all of those kinds of things that we really should have talked about in inside of that meeting happen outside and the communication process is broken. So when you're asking questions, it it forces the other person to engage in that process. So that would be tip two. The third tip is, and this directly addresses what you're talking about. How do you tell somebody that their idea is a bad one? I when when we encounter this kind of problem at UltaSpeed, I use what we call the cupcake model. And the cupcake model looks like this. I give you an assignment and I say, I want you to do X. So you sit down and you think, well, how would I do X? And you outline X and then you do some mock-ups of X and then you go to our purchasing people and say, I want to spend X amount of money and our purchasing people go, okay. And they give you a card and you order a bunch of stuff and all the stuff comes in and you spent three days and you put it all together and you think you've done a really great job with X. And you come in, one of the things, every time we we have a process for our R&D stuff before we ever put a solution out for a client, and the last stage in that is what we call peer review. And peer review is, hey, I've built this thing, I'm pretty sure this aligns with all of our values and solves a problem the way that we would want to solve it and serves the customer and all those things, but does anybody see a problem with it? And that's the time where we say, we don't understand how you set that up, so if you leave the company, we're going to be in a, we're going to be in a real hurt. That's the time where we sort that out. And peer review can often be a source of um, anxiety for a lot of people because it's the time where they spent weeks putting this thing together and now they come in front of their peers and say, here's what I think we should do. And everybody more or less says, here's why we shouldn't do that. So kind of addresses, kind of almost directly talks about what you're saying. What what I try to encourage people to, to use is the cupcake model. So you come in, you've built your cupcake, you frosted it, you've put the sprinkles on it. It's a beautiful cupcake. You think it's ready for presentation. You're ready to set it down on the table and everybody can partake of this beautiful, perfect cupcake. And you bring it into the team room and everybody looks at it and immediately people go, oh, that's a great start. But you know what? It needs a candle here and it needs a stick here and these sprinkles there and this color there and more frosting over here and less frosting over there. And pretty soon, by the time you're done, eight other people have messed with your cupcake and it doesn't even resemble your cupcake anymore. Now it looks like something entirely different. And there, there's this, there is this, I guess, temptation to say, well, that wasn't my cupcake. I'm, you know, enraged quit, right? Oh, I spent all this time and everything I do is terrible. And no, I, I would encourage you and I encourage all my team members to say, 
that cupcake is better because we all participated and made it better. And oftentimes, if you get an objective view, the cupcake that comes out of seven or eight people working on it and offering input oftentimes yields a better product than a single person can do, even if that single person is very well-intentioned, very motivated, and puts a lot of effort, very good at their job, very smart. There's, it's in the counsel of many, wisdom is found, and, and that is more often true than, than not. And so you, you are unlikely to be able to uh, attack this problem head on, to sit down with a coworker and say, your idea is a terrible one and you should drop it. If you're in a position of leadership, you can say something along the lines of, you know what? Your job is to tell me no. I appreciate perspective from you more than anything else. So I definitely want your perspective. The way that process works is the following. I will present an idea to you. I want you to go home, chew on it. I want you to give me ideas, come back with your suggestions. Then I will make a final call. And then I would like everyone to fall in line. And let's make sure that we go attack this problem the way I said we should attack this problem, because that's how we do things here. So you can you can take that approach. Um, and, and clarity in that sense is probably good, but a better approach, if it's feasible is to, even if the employee, even if the, the team member or coworker thinks this idea is a really great idea. And even if you think it's a really terrible idea, is there some way that you can use the collective input of either yourself and that team member or all of the other team members to maybe it's not, doesn't represent what either of you think, but it comes out better holistic solution. Um, again, without details, that's probably the, the 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 best I can do with that. And if you want, you can email us in and give us uh, some more details and we could dig into that a little deeper. But um, the, 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 um, the long and the short of it is, I guess, don't assume that the, don't always assume that the idea is bad. Sometimes there might be hidden gems, even what on the surface are really terrible ideas and calling terrible ideas out right on the face and just saying, oh, it's a terrible idea crushes the motivation of the person that presented the terrible idea and oftentimes will prevent or at least hinder them from bringing a new idea the, the next time around. So take that for what it's worth. So I think that um, I agree with a lot of what Noah says. However, because I, I tend to be a lot more um, individual focused and less on team building, like Noah has a team and he's also the man in charge. Whereas uh, I often am in a position where I am trying to redirect a customer um, and I am work. I have some coworkers that may need to be redirected, but I don't necessarily have any level of authority aside from some, some level that, that an architect may have say that a person's doing the work isn't mm. uh, you have to be very careful with interpersonal relationships and it, it, it just takes a lot of observation. You really have to work at it. Um, what I don't agree with is the way that, that Noah approaches it. And this is why um, Noah and I are, are very different people. We wouldn't necessarily work super well unless we understand each other. If I feel like I'm being handled, and that's what I would feel like um, the way that Noah is approaching it, I'm going to I'm going to get obstinate and I'm going to react very negatively to that. And there are other people that are going to shut down because uh, maybe they're a little bit timid to begin with. And so they've put forward an idea and any kind of thing that's going to be, you know, the wind blows a little bit and they fall over because, you know, it took a lot of courage for them to speak or maybe they're a slow thinker. And, you know, you really have to be careful 
with how you're handling individuals because you can't you can't just apply the same thing across the board. Uh, if you're the boss, you can because people just kind of have to eat it, <laughs> as it were. But it takes a lot of a lot of time to try and be able to quickly identify what makes a person tick enough to be able to effectively handle and give criticism. So I, I, I would just put a large amount of caution here. You know, um, you can try this with people that you're very familiar with, but if you're trying to redirect a customer, um, you can, you can do this a little more than you can do it with a coworker because with a customer, they're coming to you for your level of expertise. Right. And there are many mm. ways that you can you can handle this. Right. You you are in the unique position that they've brought you in. They're spending some amount of money or intending to spend some amount of money with your company. And therefore, they recognize you have skills that their team doesn't have, because if their team had it, they wouldn't pay for you to be there. So you have some some leeway there. Um, but it does go back to trying to be able to read in in the case of a customer, it's not so much the personalities, although it is that as well, but more the motivation, right? What is the motivation of the customer for bringing me in? You know, is the customer using me as a hammer against their organization, which absolutely <laughs> happens? Are they using me the as... The guy said. Exactly, exactly. That happens a lot. Um, or are they using you more surgically, right? They're trying to push forward a, a tiny agenda. They're looking for uh, people who are who are going to back them up. So you're with the customer, you're more interested in their motivations. With a coworker, you're much more interested in that long-lasting interpersonal. Um, and that only comes from observing people and how they react to various situations and, and getting really interested in what makes people tick in general. And don't confuse that for you actually care about what other people are doing. <laughs> you don't have to. You can absolutely just be really interested in solving the puzzle of what makes a person tick with not actually caring too much. So you can divorce those two. Dig, dig a little deeper, if you don't mind, into what you mean by I would feel handled. How, 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 what does that mean exactly? And yeah, dig into that a little bit, if you would. So the the way that I prefer to to be interacted with, and there's a there's a small minority of people. It's about it's about seven percent of the population have this kind of personality, where um, more there's a lot of people that will say they don't want to be handled, but there are a very small minority of people that actually react super negatively to that, and that there's a lot that's involved in that. So. Um, lot there for me personally, I put a lot of time and effort into developing something before I actually make a stand on it. So Noah or anyone that knows me can attest to the fact that I will tell you straight up. I don't know. I might make some tiny opinion of like, I think it may work like this, but if I actually come out and say, you know, this is what I think I've put a, some significant thought into that ahead of time. Which means that if you if you are uh, coming to me and you want to make an adjustment and you come at it with like, hey, let's get everybody together and, you know, like, kumbaya, and we'll all sing songs. I'm like, you're handling me like just I'm a big boy. What mm. is it that you're getting at? You know, mm. and that mm -hmm. that really tweaks me way more than than a direct criticism, like direct criticism can can sting a little bit. 
and I may take that back and, and think about it. But the whole, like, when I feel like I'm being handled, that builds resentment, right? Like, you're, you, you don't think enough of me to address the problem directly to me, that you have to shield yourself in, like, groupthink. That, that speaks to the fact that you don't, you don't think I can handle it, that I, I'm not professional enough to be able to, to tackle this job. Like, there's, there's a bunch of uh, loaded emotion that comes across with that. And so you have to be very careful when, you know, if Noah's the boss, then I'm going to eat that because he's the boss. But I'm still not going to like it. Like, there's a much better way to deal with me than that. And that would not go well. So from uh, from Jeremy's perspective, if if his coworker comes in and let's just say and I'm just going to make something up here, he says, hey, I think we should put in 802.11b access points in the entire building because you know what? Gosh, darn it. Those things work so much better than this new confangled crap. And uh, that's just that's what we should do. If you just tell we'll call him Bob. Hey, Bob, that's a terrible idea. We're not ripping all the good access points out and pulling crappy ones in. I mean, that would be a very direct approach, but it would probably not, Bob would not be terribly receptive to it, yeah? Well, you're right, except, so the 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 question would be, so I, I lead with questions like you do, uh, like you mentioned, although I I lead with questions that have a very big point to them. So I might say something like, so what is it that you like? Why is it you want to put in these, um, you know, the B standard? Exactly. Are you thinking that we're getting too much interference from the wall and yes. you need to have like a bigger wave to get through the hard, like the hard surfaces? Yes. Um, right. So that you, I'm, I'm leveling a criticism. Like I, I ask a question and level a criticism at the same time, but also give you the, like, I let you know that that I can see a legitimate point for that. Like I try to come up with the most legitimate point that I can see for your silly idea and then bait you with, Hey, is this what you're doing? Cause then I probably have an already, you know, an, an already prepared response for that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it and yeah. So it's asking that clarifying question. Um, and, and so anyway, so if you can, if Jeremy, if you can lead people, um, to the answer you're trying to get them to, um, then by asking a question, you're likely going to be better off. So that I guess that that would be that would be my advice. And um, let us let us know how that goes. If uh, if you implement any of these things and it turns out and works out, or if it, you implement these things and it doesn't work out, either way, uh, we'd like to know. Email us back or let us know again. Eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at ask Noah show. Dot com. It's how you make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Our pick of the week this week is MKDocs. MKDocs is a simple, downright gorgeous static site generator that's geared towards building project documentation. So I have become a huge fan of static site generators. They're First of all, they're very easy to implement into a CI pipeline if you're looking to, 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 to build things out. They also work fairly well natively with... Um, with GitLab. And so it, it becomes very easy to manage it because you're essentially just changing files. And then when you're ready, you can just rebuild the site. And that's, that goes for Hugo and it certainly goes for MKDocs. So MKDocs is what's used by um, NetGate, uses it for all of their products. I think Hedgedoc uses it for, all, for, their, uh, for, for, for their documentation. And uh, essentially, you write your source files in Markdown. You put those in a, in a, in a, in a, in a YAML configuration file. 
And then it builds the site based off of that. And so um, there are two pieces to the doc site. There's MK docs, which is the static site generator and material for the MK docs, which is the theme that makes everything look good. And so we have links for you in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But we have launched our own instance of this. And so you can find this at docs.mindripmedia.com. So a few weeks ago, we had a, uh, a sprint where we sat down to try to uh, try to get up to date some of the infrastructure and stuff and, and kind of roll with some of the changes. And um, as we were setting this stuff up, it, we, we thought, you know, it'd be really great to have some of this stuff available that anybody um, could could check out and could reference. And so when we have tutorials or when we have run books or when we have things that you hear referenced on the show, we're going to try to add them to docs.mindripmedia.com and you can find them there. You can also make a contribution. So if you go to docs.mindripmedia.com and click on contributing, it will give you a uh, sleuth has written a really fantastic tutorial complete with screenshots and the whole nine yards on how you can submit a doc, um, to the MindDrip Media doc site. And so we'd like this to be a community resource that people can use to solve their own problems and, uh, and, and better their online experience with Linux. So make sure to check that out. Again, docs.mindripmedia.com. If you want to learn more about MKDocs, you can learn more at mkdocs.org. Our gadget of the week this week is the Unihertz Titan Pocket. So Unihertz is a cell phone company that came into uh, my existence or in into my life a few weeks ago, and I noticed that they are a niche cell phone manufacturer. So a bunch of cell phones that no other manufacturer would touch because they're just too much of a niche market, Unihertz picks up and does. Now, the downside is they're a Chinese manufacturer, so it comes with all of the security and privacy implications of having a Chinese-made phone. But... If you can look past that, or if you're just looking for a toy like I am, and that isn't much of a concern to you, then I would highly recommend that you check out the Unihertz Titan Pocket. So this is a straight-up BlackBerry ripoff. I loved my BlackBerry key Keystone 2. It was fantastic. I love having a physical keyboard. I spend so much of my time pulling my smartphone out, responding to messages of some sort, that it just makes good sense to have a physical keyboard. And the Titan Pocket is a very robust, very uh, well-built uh, phone, unlike the, the most of the smartphones today that are, well, let's make it thinner and let's pull the battery out and let's do, and, and all of a sudden you wind up with this paper thin thing that bends and eventually the screen snaps. This is the opposite. It's a very robust, very thick, very well built industrial style phone. Ships with Android 11. And the reason that it kind of passes the, hey, that's something I could spend my money on. It is available to be flashed with Lineage OS. So you can run a completely open source or de Googleified. Uh, operating system on this device. You get the physical phone or a physical keyboard. You get a phone. It runs Android, has a type C uh, charging jack on it, a 3.1 chin display. If you don't want to flash lineage on it, it still comes with Android 11. So it's still, uh, still a current, uh, you know, operating system that's on there. Uh, and, and, and a decent overall product at 299 gets you the, the Titan pocket. Same company, Unihertz, also makes the Jelly 2. Now, the Jelly 2 is really unique. Instead of being a BlackBerry ripoff, this is the world's smallest Android phone. So this thing is teeny tiny. It's just bigger than your palm, um, and it's 200 bucks. So it's, it's a little bit bigger than what you would think that a, a pager would be. And because of that, that 2,000 milliamp battery is going to last you all day long. Now, the the uh, the Jelly 2 ships with Android 10. It is also flashable with Lineage OS. It features a dual 
SIM, a micro SD slot. It uh, features a fingerprint scanner. The screen is uh, three inches. So it is a tiny, tiny little phone. Um, but again, charges with Type-C, comes with a little lanyard and a little case. 200 bucks. You'd be hard-pressed to find another device this small um, that you can carry with you. And so w- the thing that kind of appeals to me about phones like this is it's it it presents itself a unique opportunity. If you are one of those people that say, I want to be connected all the time and I'm not necessarily tied to my cell phone provider or my SMS provider or whatever. I just need a device that gets me on Wi-Fi and I can have Telegram installed or Element installed or Signal installed and I can just get all of my messages and be reachable with a little device that's on me 24-7, 365. Um, This might be a great option to go with because it's just a tiny little credit card size phone. In fact, either of them would not be a bad way to go. So the company, again, Unihertz, U-N-I-H-E-R-T-Z. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, Google Analytics and Privacy Shield. So the legislation was invalidated in 2020. And of course, this had far-reaching consequences for Services that were based in the United States that were operating in Europe because they were no longer allowed to transfer data uh, of European citizens to the United States. And now the Austrian Data Protections Authority has struck the same uh, chord as the European court declaring that Privacy Shield is invalid and that it decided that the use of Google Analytics violates the GPDR. Google is subject to surveillance by the U.S. surveillance services and cannot be or and can be ordered to disclose data to the on European citizens. And therefore, the data of European citizens may not be transferred across the Atlantic. The the thing that I think is of most interest here is the American Cloud Act authorized uh, the ability to demand personal data from Google, Facebook, and other U.S. providers, even when they're operating outside of the U.S. And so that applies to things, uh, to citizens of Europe. And what was interesting to me was when the court looked at this, what they eventually decided was, and I quote, the decisive factor for the legal assessment of the use of Google Analytics is not whether a U.S. intelligent agency actually obtained the data or whether Google identified the user. The mere fact that this was theoretically possible is already a violation of the GPDR. The fact that this is theoretically possible. So they've looked at this and said, because this is technologically possible to do this, whether or not it's being done is completely irrelevant. And that is oftentimes the track that we get off here in the U.S. We say, well, no, Google would never do They do no evil. They, they already have my information. We come up with excuse after excuse as to why it doesn't matter that Google collects all of this information, stores all of this information, and then is ordered by various different courts or various different subpoenas to relinquish this information when it's convenient. And so this is this is another strike against this idea. And I guess what I took away from this, Steve, is that, you know, when you look at what happens over in the EU, they make decisions and they do care about privacy. And because the EU doesn't have the massive size corporations that we have here in the United States, they are able nobody really pushes back on. Yeah, I mean, Europeans should have uh, privacy. That seems like a good idea. Right, oh mate, and then all of a sudden it's passed, and that's the thing. 
and we get to benefit from that. And so I've, I've heard people complain, man, did we, oh my gosh, did I hear complaints when, when the, the cookie thing came out, right? And everybody, every client from, from here to kingdom come was going, why is this pop-up coming up and I have to accept our cookie? Well, that pop-up is there because someone decided that you had to make a decision if you wanted your information to be collected or not. So if you don't care, if you truly don't care, just click on the box and it'll go away. And then they can collect whatever they want to collect and you can continue on your merry way. But for people like myself, I do go into the little customized cookies things and I uncheck everything other than strictly necessary. And I'm thankful for the fact that somebody across the way decided to make enough of a stink that now any company that operates across seas has to comply with these GPDR regulations. And we benefit from that in the United States. So I guess thank you to the EU for for doing this uh, and and thank you for caring about privacy and uh, sorry, U.S. companies that you uh, that you have to conform to this. Steve, your thoughts on on this. Does this do a lot for privacy or is this a lot to do about nothing? I think that it potentially can. And I think that in large part, it's symbolic. I think that because the, just because you you can opt out of cookies which by the way I also do I go in immediately and just put whatever strictly necessary uh doesn't mean that they're not going to find some other way to to do this or just to continue do it in anyways because mm. um we see the fines that are coming out of Europe and really they're kind of a drop in the bucket for most of the companies that are receiving them so there's definitely some positive and I'm thankful that there are emotions happening. Although I'm not wholly convinced that this, these things are done for the European privacy as much as it is a way for a group of nations to kind of fight back against something that they had little control over before. And mm. I think that, that that's largely what the motivation is. I think the jury is still out in terms of whether, whether, privacy is positively impacted by this or not yeah i guess so well we'll, we'll continue to watch it but i uh i get excited when stuff like this comes out and I, I appreciate the fact that we get to take advantage of it even though we don't live in the places that are making such harsh rulings on, on this stuff liberty linux that is the new i guess they're talking uh, calling it a mixed linux environment form of linux from seuss so the service package includes a consolidated maintenance package, security updates, and white glove services and support. Seuss characterized Liberty uh, as a technological and support offering that provides customers a unified support experience for managing their heterogeneous IT infrastructure and IT and support solutions, a tech support model for existing Linux, not another new Linux distribution. So here's my take on that. Linux, Liberty Linux is a SUS rebuild of CentOS 8 aimed at rel compatibility and effectively it's a new Linux distribution. That's what it is. Um, my, when I read this and when I, when I, when I looked into this, my first thought was, why another RHEL clone? We have Alma Linux, we have Rocky Linux, we have uh, CentOS, and then on top of that, we have actual RHEL, which you can now get a subscription for. So I question why the benefit or what the need from another commercial entity to provide a, another RHEL spin. But 
I've always seen Seuss as kind of a baby red hat. So I guess to a certain degree, if that's kind of what they're going after, maybe it does make sense to have a full on ripoff of red hat and then they can use that. Steve, have you played with, uh, with, uh, with Liberty Linux at all, or have you looked into it at all? You know what? I'm not going to touch this one. I think I'm uh, a little too close to it. Nope, that's fair enough. So I guess this this will be interesting to see what happens. I think that SUSE oftentimes can cross paths with uh, Red Hat customer base. And I, I think there is an opportunity for them to serve those customers. I think oftentimes when I have found myself in the position of having those conversations with clients and they say, well, have you heard about the SUSE thing? Or we heard about the SUSE thing? Or we tried this thing on SUSE. Oftentimes when we actually dig into what their requirements are, it's I've yet to really come across a situation in where SUSE was able to deliver a product or service that Red Hat couldn't do or one of the Red Hat derivatives couldn't do. And so, I, I again, I, I really struggle at, at what they're aiming here. But uh, Liberty Linux, it's around. So we'll continue to watch it. And um, so long as SUSE continues to be an organization that is a- around and it doesn't get sold again, um, hopefully they'll continue to maintain it. We'll have another uh, RHEL clone that's now developed by yet another corporation that has a competing Linux distribution is what it is strange world hey couple of announcements before we get out of here we have our a monthly lug coming up that happens this thursday if you're in the grand forks area we'd invite you to join us it'll be at alta speed technologies top floor check out the docs.minddripmedia.com and community night this is going to happen next thursday it'll be thursday the february 3rd at seven o'clock p.m we'll be online we'll be hanging out it'll be kind of an online party we're going to try to answer some of your questions we can't get to during the show have a good week 